Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. She's a fashion blogger, model, and entrepreneur. She's amazing. The latest tips on fashion, beauty, wellness, travel, and her lifestyle. And now, here's the founder and creator of Not Basic Blonde, Olasha. Hi loves, welcome back to Not Basic Blonde podcast. And this episode is very informative. We're sharing plastic surgery secrets with my guest, Dr. Ben Talley, who is well-known and famous plastic surgeon in Beverly Hills. So we are discussing fillers, Botox, oral lift, facelift, rhinoplasty, and so much more. And I'm sharing something personal that I never shared on social media before about myself in this episode. So tune in, guys. It will be fun. Hi, Dr. Ben, Tally. Welcome to Not Basic Blonde Podcast. How are you today? Fantastic. Thank you. Thanks for having me on the Not Basic Blonde Podcast. <laughs> Thank you for being my guest. Yeah, I'm excited. I've been I've been looking at all your stuff. Yeah, I've been looking at all your stuff too. And you're like artist. <laughs> oh, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Would you please tell our listeners about yourself? Yeah, I'm a, I'm a facial plastic surgeon, which means I focused originally in head and neck cancer and then uh, went into facial cosmetics and reconstruction and working here in Beverly Hills. Everything went to cosmetic very, very quickly because my work got popular being uh, in an area where there's uh, so much medical tourism and uh, so many, I'd say, kind of suboptimal results. When I moved to LA, I got popular very quickly. So my whole practice went to facial cosmetics and now I specialize mainly in facelifts, lip lifts, rhinoplasty, eyelid surgeries, and uh, I used to do probably 20 to 50 injectables a day. So I lecture a lot on injectables and all the problems and the proper ways to do things and stuff like that. So I love teaching and I still try to do that as much as possible. That's nice. Are you originally from LA or where are you from? Yeah, yeah. I grew up here. I was born in San Jose and then I grew up in LA and went to San Diego for medical school. So I was there four years and then New York. I went to Columbia and Cornell for my residency and then did two fellowships at NYU and Einstein and then came back to LA to start my practice just under six years ago. Oh, nice. And how did you decide to get in the specialty? Well, I wanted to treat cancers first. So I was in head and neck cancer uh, training with uh, ENT, ear, nose and throat. And I wanted to kind of take out cancers and help people and save people. And after uh, three years, I ran the clinic there and I started crying every day because I would I was the one to tell people that they had cancer. And I'm very, uh, I guess, empathic. And as soon as somebody would start to feel even remotely sad, I would just start crying. And uh, as much as I wanted to help people and save people and save them from cancer, I decided that that was too rough on me. And I started looking into just doing the reconstruction, meaning the cancer reconstruction, hanging out with all the plastic surgeons. I got exposed to the cosmetics and I saw that actually the cosmetics was the difficult thing. And I love getting better at things technically and being perfectionistic and trying to be as good as I can. And I felt as though the cosmetic was the one where you really show people how good you are. 
and I'm kind of like that. Like I like to show how good I am at things. Yeah, it's the hardest part about cosmetic and plastic surgery because I mean doctors have created miracles. Yeah, the the bar is very high, and people see what you do on the face, so you can't get away with bad work. It's not like the the body. Obviously, you have to do a great job, but little scars and things like that you can hide on the face. It's right there in front of you and it's, you know, the way you talk to the world. So you can't hide it. And I, I like that because I, I want to be critiqued and I want people to see my work. And even if it's natural and they don't know it's there, that's good enough for me. Yeah. You know, I dreamed about being a doctor all my life, but then I couldn't handle pain and, and blood and all that. So I didn't go in that field. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's, it's a lot of uh, sacrifice years and years and years. So, uh, I had, I fortunately had a lot of fun during my training, so it wasn't so bad, but my friends were never able to balance. So they, they were all, you know, kind of stuck studying and working and working. And I was lucky enough that the way I lived my life, I had a lot of fun at the same time. Yeah. And mostly all the doctors have a problem balancing personal life and work because when they come home, they can't forget about work. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And what range of services do you currently provide in your practice? So I'm the facial plastic surgeon in my practice. And I do, again, mainly facelifts, lip lifts, nose jobs, eyes, that kind of stuff surgically. And I was doing a ton of filler and lasers. But now I have Jennifer Hollander, who's a nurse practitioner, and she does identical work to me. So finally, I was able to trust somebody and kind of back off from having to have control over everything. And she's just so amazing that like my mom goes to her and I trust her. So she's doing all the injectables now. And then recently, we brought in Dr. Robert Cohen, who is he was the head guy for a long time in Scottsdale and Phoenix. He's like the top plastic surgeon there and he's just incredible at like body work. So um, when I saw he wanted to make the move to LA, I thought, wow, this is amazing. I've, I've been sending this guy, my patients and my family for forever. <laughs> and now he's finally coming. And I thought it'd be amazing to work with somebody again that I fully trust and I can just send him patients without thinking, without worrying, you know, what he's going to do. He's so trustworthy. So in our practice now, we have everything. We do the body, he does it, I do the face, and then Jen does all the injectables and the lasers. And we try to keep it tight like that because we want very, very high quality results. Yeah, it's hard to find people to trust in people who do the same kind of work as you do, so it will not ruin your brand. Right. Yeah. I'm always worried about that. Yeah. And would you please tell us more about our lift? Yeah, the the Aura Lift is uh, my version of a face and neck lift. So the problems I saw with classic ones, which is what everybody sees, is that you can tell a facelift was done. People look pulled, stretched, the side of their face looks hollow, there's bad scarring, doesn't last so long, you know, fall down after a couple of years. And all these lifts, no matter what they did to the neck, the face just wouldn't get better. So they have to go fat graft it and add volume to the face. And most people don't look good with big bulky faces. And what I wanted to do is create a lift that really fixed all those problems. And that's the Aura Lift, which is technically it's considered a modified vertical vector deep plane extended facelift, which is too much of a mouthful for people to say. So I came up with this name that a patient actually described to me called the Aura Lift. She said it lifted her aura after the surgery. And so we called it the Aura Lift. And what it does is really lifts the kind of cheek and face, refreshes the jawline and the neck, the jowls, everything more than any other lift can do. And that's not like a light claim to make. It can do more than any other lift can do 
without having to add fat into the face to make it work. So people do stay more delicate, more natural. It's not a pulling type lift anymore. Now it's a releasing type lift. So I go and release all the tension that's formed in the face as it's drooped over time and then redrape the face gently, delicately, without having to pull and stretch it. And when you do that, the incisions, they heal seamlessly. You don't see them anymore because there's no tension on them versus the old types. They stretch out the ear, they, you know, they cause hypertrophic scarring or atrophic scarring which you know, I think is really wrong if you're trying to make somebody look younger and prettier and uh, make their skin look better and then you go put scars on their face. Is that the same as a mini facelift? So mini facelift is a very vague kind of term that people use incorrectly all the time. So a mini facelift is a mini version of what any surgeon does for a facelift. So I can call a mini facelift a mini facelift and then you see you know, Dr. X down the street doing a mini facelift and it's literally a 50th of what I do. Um, my mini facelifts are, are pretty dramatic changes still. Mini facelifts in general, if you talk to a surgeon, it means that they're not really doing much. They go and kind of release it a little bit and then pull the skin tight and close it back up in a quick surgery. So they call it a mini lift. Mini lifts lead to mini results and maximum scarring is what I tell people. So in most hands, when you do a mini facelift, you're actually just getting no result or minimal result but a big scar because you put tension on the, on the skin. Uh, the way that I do a mini lift, when I do it, it's pretty un uncommon. It's pretty infrequent. I actually just do the jawline and neck without doing the rest of the face, which is really sad because I can do so much to make somebody look refreshed and it only takes another like 20 minutes. Oh, wow. But how is, how long is the recovery? I mean, how long is the downtime for both? For the recovery for an oral lift, uh, it's about a two hour procedure. You do it either wide awake with a little Valium or you can do it under IV twilight sedation like propofol like you would for an endoscopy. And uh, you go home with like a head wrap and for a week you have stitches in. The head wrap actually comes off the next day. Usually it takes two weeks to three weeks. And at that point, nobody can tell you did it, not even like relatives. At three months, that's when you're ready for like a wedding or something like that where you do a lot of photography. But two, three weeks, if you run into your mom or your sister, it's really highly unlikely they would notice you did anything. A mini lift just uh, gets through that a little bit faster because you don't get the swelling in the face. It's just the jawline in the neck that gets uh, bruised up and a little swollen. Oh, I see. And what do you think about collagen, like all the collagen supplements or how to increase collagen in your skin? Right. So, so collagen is one of the many substructure elements in your skin. You've got elastin, hyaluronic acid. Uh, you even have connecting uh, molecules like desmin and vimentin. You know, these things all make up the soft tissue matrix is what we call it, whether it's in the dermis or the SMAS. We lose the structure of collagen over time and the amount of collagen as we age. So the best way to restore that typically is uh, doing radiofrequency treatments, the strongest of which is called profound, profound radiofrequency. And they're very different, the, the radiofrequency treatments. People think they're all the same, so they group them. And I'll ask people, I say, you know what, you should do profound. And they, they tell me, well, I, I, I already did that. And they, you know, I'm like, well, describe the procedure to me. And they say, well, they, they put these needles in or they put a wand in. And I say, no, that's a different device. Doing radio frequency does not mean you did the best radio frequency. You could have done the weakest radio frequency. They're very, very different in how they act. So Profound is able to go in and instead of putting energy in the skin with a light like a laser does, it does it with needles and it can stimulate collagen, elastin, and hyaluronic acid. So you're improving the elasticity, the hydration of the skin, and the rigidity or the tensile strength, which is what the collagen does. Eating collagen supplements has zero effect on 
making collagen. So collagen that you ingest orally gets broken down just like any protein would. And then your body has to remake collagen anyways from the amino acids that you have in your body circulating. It doesn't mean that collagen supplements are bad. There are, are certain collagen supplements that you can take that have good blends of amino acids uh, in them. But typically collagen is only produced by your own body. So ingesting it doesn't make it happen. And there are certain per protein supplements that, you know, if you have like a kidney disease or kidney problems, it can actually cause more kidney problems. So you, they, they can cause problems. Um, so my advice to patients is if you like a collagen supplement that has these amino acids in it, it could be good for you. Like taking a multivitamin, but don't ever think that taking that is actually directly producing collagen. It's not. It's, it's, it's poor advertising. You know, people tell you that to sell it to you. It's not actually happening. Your body will take whatever molecules are needed and form the collagen. And radiofrequency or lasers can stimulate your body to form more collagen or direct it to happen in certain areas. Wow, because collagen supplements are so highly advertised right now. Money, money, money. <laughs> yeah, yeah, so much. <laughs> they, they, they sell. And it's funny because because collagen is just one of those molecules. It's just that people become familiar with it, so it's easier to sell to them, and it's easier for them to imagine, because they think, oh my God, collagen is the number one cause of aging. Uh, just like when they came out and started talking about stem cells, everybody said, oh my God, stem cells are going to be the cure for everything. Then they came and started talking about telomeres or exosomes, and they say, okay, well, we age because the telomeres get shorter. Well, we don't know that. All we know is that coincidentally, as you age, the telomeres get shorter. It's not a causation. It doesn't mean that it causes it. It just means that at the same time, it's happening. So people came out and said, oh, we have these treatments to help your telomeres. <laughs> and so, uh, you know, you, you tell people these things and you can tell them one factor out of 5,000 and they, they keep it in their head. And you tell them, listen, I've got a stem cell treatment. And they think, okay, well, stem cells are going to cure everything or collagen is the solution for me. Uh, realistically, again, collagen is just one of many of these substances structure elements in the face or the body. Yeah, I know usually some of the doctors use stem cells for hair growth. And yeah, so, so stem cells and hair growth is also, uh, it's mislabeled. So stem cells, if somebody gave you stem cells, they're not really giving you stem cells. Like you're not really getting stem cells. They're just calling it stem cell to sell it to you. The type of hair treatments that we have that work are PRP, which is mislabeled as a stem cell. It's platelet-rich plasma which means you're injecting somebody with platelets and signaling factors. So it signals your body to bring in other cells into the area to heal it. Uh, stem cell is actually a cell that has pluripotency, which means it can turn into anything. Just like uh, you have sperm and you have an egg and they come together and they make uh, this little gamete and you have uh, this, this kind of pr proliferation of one cell going to four, then 16, more and more. And then it can redirect part of it to become skin, part of it can become hair, part of it become teeth. That's a stem cell. We don't really have these stem cells once we grow up other than in the bone marrow. It has a certain type of stem cell, which is not pluripotent, but it can still be redirected to different kinds of blood cells. Um, so when people get injected with stem cells, it's really usually not a stem cell. It's PRP or it's nanofat. Nanofat is a type of adipose-derived stem cell, which is a progenitor cell or a growth cell meaning it just stimulates regrowth of certain tissues. But again, it's not a stem cell. So um, we do use PRP with nanofat or PRP with A-cell uh, for hair regrowth. And what it does is it actually slows or stops hair loss in about 90% of patients when you do it properly. And it can actually get regrowth in a small subset of them. So maybe 20% 
20%, 30%, they would see a little bit of increase in density from hair that was lost only in the last year, not before that. Oh, wow, that's very interesting. I didn't know that. And what do you think of buckle fat removal? So buckle fat removal, uh, what the buckle fat pad is, is it's a smooth, slippery uh, bag of fat rather than the type that you have in your abdomen, which is a bunch of little balls of fat. This is one smooth, slippery, like water, water balloon of fat that's in the cheek, in the middle of the cheek, in front of your masseter muscle and behind your mouth. So it sits in that mid cheek area. Um, it's overused, meaning people take out buckle fat too much not realizing the negative effects of it. So the buckle fat is a support structure on the face and everything on the, on the face supports whatever is inferior to it, right? Because of gravity, whatever is above pushes out and it prevents the bottom part from collapsing. So the buckle fat supports the area around the mouth that we call the marionette lines or the pre-jowl. So this whole area from the side of the mouth that people get shadows on, the buckle fat pad is supporting that and keeping it from forming a deep shadow or a deep crease. So most people, if you go and remove the buckle fat pad, it's just gonna collapse that lower part of the face. Um, and doctors would say, oh, it ages people faster. They don't really get how. This is how. That's how. It, it, it collapses that lower part of the face. So um, buckle fat removal can be performed, and I do perform it, on people who have excess buckle fat. And you don't know somebody has excess buckle fat when they're 19. You know it when they're like 25 because they're losing the baby fat in their face and they're slimming out already. And at that point, you could see, okay, does this person have a true excess or is it just going to go away on its own? If it's going to go away on its own, you don't touch it because you're going to make them look gaunt when they're 25 or 30 years old. They're going to look like they're 40. And this is kind of what you've seen happen in the faces of people like Hadid's where they took it and they look cool, I guess, because they got that cheek contour uh, when they were 21. And then you look at them when they're 25 and they look like they're 40. So I, I advise most people not to do it unless you have true excess. There are people who have a little excess. And what I do in those people is I take a tiny bit, maybe 20, 25% of their buckle fat, leaving them with enough for support. And then I do profound, that radiofrequency treatment, to really slim in the jawline, the face, and everything in a healthy way not in a way that's going to make them look gaunt, aged, sunken, or hollow in the next five, 10 years. Because once that happens, you can't fix it. You can't go back and replace buckle fat. It's impossible. Yeah, some of my friends did it and then they have to get fillers because their cheeks were gone. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, they lose the soft part of their cheek. And people don't realize there's a balance in your face between skeleton and soft tissue. You go get rid of these things, all of a sudden you start to look skeletonized instead of looking soft. And nobody wants all these shadows on their face. You have to look soft and beautiful and young. It doesn't help to just look contoured if you're going to look like you're a 90-year-old skeleton. Yeah, that's so true. <laughs> what is the most popular surgery request has been lately? Like I've heard there are so many women take out their breast implants because mm -hmm. breast implants, sickness or go going on right now. Right, yes. So there's a lot of explants going on for people who wanted to revert to uh, natural breasts and they take out smaller implants and replace it with fat or they take out big implants and they do a surgical lift, meaning they uh, actually reduce a lot of the skin. The explants don't need to be done for most people. Most people don't get breast implant illness. People have been doing it for years and most, you know, 99 plus percent of the time, they're totally fine. So it's not something that occurs to everybody. It's a very, very small subset of the population. So it's important for people to know that uh, just because you have a breast implant doesn't mean you're going to get sick from it. One out of a thousand might. Okay, one out of 2,000, 5,000. It's a very, very small amount of people. And when it happens, no big deal. You go take it out and 
you can kind of revert back to something natural as long as they weren't too big. In my practice, where I focus on face, right now, facelifts are huge, meaning the aura lift. And uh, what, what I'm seeing now after the quarantine is I'm seeing a lot of guys more than I used to see because the guys are sitting there doing Zooms and FaceTimes and they're looking at their neck more often than they used to. And guys who would have just let it go, now they think to, to themselves, you know what, I notice it more now. I've got downtime and the guys are dying to do it. And it's actors and athletes and people that, you know, have really busy lives and can't do it. Now they're sitting there with three months, four months on their hands and they are dying to do it, especially now where, where they can go through the recovery without having any social obligations for a while. Wow, that's interesting. I didn't know that guys actually, I mean, I know guys do Botox and fillers and other things, but like facelifts and stuff, I wouldn't think of that. Yeah, yeah. And if guys you see are- my photos, they're, they're natural. You can't tell anything was done. Wow, that's amazing. What is your favorite procedure that you perform? My favorite... I think the most powerful thing I do is the aura lift and the second most powerful is facelift. I mean, uh, lip lift and a rhinoplasty actually. So I love the aura lift because it's such a quick procedure and it refreshes somebody's face. You have no idea it was done. Their jawline and the neck looks awesome and it looks like they have better skin quality. So I love doing that. The lip lift is the quickest thing you could do on somebody that makes a huge difference. So a long upper lip, poor tooth show, poor definition, overfilling, we can fix all that with a, you know, it's about a 30 minute procedure. The only issue is it takes a little bit to heal from it. It takes about three weeks to look okay and then three months to really look great from it. But otherwise that makes such a big difference on somebody's face, making them look more delicate, giving, making them look younger and even sexier. And it really improves the sensuality of the mouth and people... I think afterwards gain huge, huge amount of confidence from it, just like you would from a rhinoplasty. Because rhinoplasty and lip, they're kind of in the middle of your face. So when you do the nose, you do the lip, it really makes a huge difference. Yeah, and I feel like lip lift is the best. I really want to do it because I'm so tired of fillers, especially my body, like digesting them so fast. And I have to get them like every two months. <laughs> and it's just so annoying. And long term, it's just very inconvenient. Right, of course, yeah. Yeah, so this is a nice option for that for people, especially who don't respond well to fillers. Some people will do great with fillers because you put a tiny bit. Some people really need a lot. And you don't want to be a person who needs a lot of filler because fillers draw in water to your face and it changes the way you move your face and the way you function. And it also changes your aging because if you have all this water in your face for years, you're expanding it and aging faster and drooping faster. So fillers are really only for people who need tiny bits of it. Um, people who need more, they're usually more... Uh, I'd say appropriate for surgery. Yeah. And what do you think at what age is appropriate to get fillers? It's really any age. I'd say when people get into their early 20s, they really want to do the lips first more than anything. Uh, Early 20s, you don't really need under eye and that kind of stuff. Some people like to put a little bit in the chin. Um, So those are, you know, what you see in the younger years. And then once you hit 30, uh, you start looking at the under eyes, the mid face, and everybody wants to do a cheek contour because their cheek drop. And you just try to keep it to low volumes and, uh, you know, everybody does fine. The cool thing is that a lot of people are doing rhinoplasty with it, meaning you can actually use filler to make the nose look better. Um, if somebody you know has big issues and asymmetries and big humps, I tell them, you know what, you're better off with surgery, don't waste your time. 
But if somebody has the tiniest little hump and you can just get rid of it with a droplet of filler above it, why not? You know, it makes a nice little tiny difference and uh, they avoid having to do surgery and it's just a little bit of maintenance every nine months or so. Yeah. Have you ever had any transgender cases? Like, because it's more acceptable in society nowadays. Transgender? I've, I've had a, a bunch. Yeah. I see a lot of transgender mainly in my practice for the facelift and the lip lift. Uh, so I don't run, I don't do facial feminization surgery where we're doing, you know, where the surgeon is doing bony contouring and bony movements, uh, but I do do the soft tissue portions of it. So I see a lot and it is a much bigger, stronger community now. Uh, the transgender community has kind of joined the LG, you know, the, 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 the lesbian gay community has now become LGTBQRP. So they have uh, different parts now where, where they really are supporting all types of gender identification. And uh, going through the transformative process is very difficult for people. And I've seen that, you know, getting more and more into it. And I, I like being a part of it, although I don't really market myself as a transgender surgeon because I'm not. I, I just help with small parts of it, the lip lift and the facelift. The lip lift is a, a really essential portion, I think, for most people to have a more delicate lower face. It's not that a lip lift feminizes somebody, but it does make it much more delicate. Yeah. What do you think about rhinoplasty and what type of rhinoplasty is better? Because I know there's open and closed um, type. Yeah. So a lot of patients are confused by that, including my own friends. I have my friends who want to do a rhinoplasty and they ask me like, oh, well, don't you think I should do it closed? Don't you think I should do it open? And I think it's it's kind of crazy because um, that's actually the last thing you ever need to think about. It's completely unrelated to your results. Um, people who, you know, if somebody's going to form a scar from an open rhinoplasty, it also means you're going to get a bad result. <laughs> like it's, it's the, the surgeons who produce bad noses produce bad scars. If you go to a good surgeon who does good rhinoplasty, it doesn't matter if it's open or closed. The incision is invisible anyways. And you can actually go on my website and you look at the photos from the base and most people would assume it's a closed rhinoplasty because there's no scar. Every single time I tell them the reason I put the base photo is because there's no scar because it's an open rhinoplasty and I want people to realize that the incision is not a deciding factor for any of this. So the open versus closed rhinoplasty, the only thing that really helps is closed maybe heals a little bit faster, but you know you shouldn't care about that if you're getting a lifelong result. You really just want the best surgeon. So open versus closed, it should be a moot point. It, it should be something that nobody even talks about except for surgeons. And for surgeons, I say you do closed when you're somebody who's a minimalist. You go in and you leave things attached. You don't like to disrupt. You don't straighten noses too much. You do kind of smaller things. That's what closed is good for. If you're somebody like me, who I've become more complex over time, I'm a maximalist. I go in and I uh, do spreader grafting and I do lower struts and I do all these different grafts and they're moving things around. I need to do it open because I need more control from on top. So I actually need the access and the control, which you can't get from a closed. So closed is more for minimalist surgeons who like less disruptive techniques. And for more maximalists like me who disrupt things more, we need the control of doing it open. Um, other than that, I, I tell people really, when you're looking for a rhinoplasty surgeon, you have to just look at the results. That's what you're going to get. You look at their pattern of results, their human pattern. You look at, you know, we all do the same thing over and over again. So you look at my noses, for example, and the only pattern you'll see is that everybody looks nicer. They look sweeter. They look like a more pleasant person, less hostile, softer eyes. And it's because I make the nose blend into its surrounding. I make it match everything. And my noses look completely different, but they all look kind of cute. Versus you look at like a Dr. Uh, Gregorian, for example, who's 
very, very successful, very high satisfaction surgeon. People love his work and he can reproducibly get this cutesy little nose. And it's not my aesthetic. I do a completely different nose, but he can get that reproducibly. But then you have somebody that we call a cookie cutter, different kind of surgeon. They do the same surgery on every single person and their noses come out very different on every single person because they're a, they keep doing the same procedure on different types of noses. And their success rate is not as high as mine or Gregorian's where we get reproducible results on every type of nose. And that's really what you want is you want to know that you're going to get the result that you're asking for. And what is the recovery time like open versus closed? So the, that also depends on the surgeon. So a surgeon can be more traumatic or less traumatic. My recovery times closed or open, they're pretty quick. Uh, revisions are the thing that changes. So let's say you do uh, open or closed rhinoplasty with me. Closed at two weeks, no one can tell. Open at three weeks, no one can tell. Closed at three months, the photos look a little tiny bit better than the open, but not much. They look about the same. And at six months, they're equal anyways. And you look awesome in photos and in person. And at a year, you're 80% healed. Three years, you're 95% healed. And that's rhinoplasty. And there's always a risk of having to do a revision, meaning going back and touching it up. We only assess that at about a year and a half. The more traumatic surgeons who are a little heavy-handed or get more bleeding or that kind of stuff, they get more black eyes, their noses can stay swollen up to a year and a half easily. And it really just depends what you're doing. On revisions, you always have a little bit more swelling and longer healing time because it's already been tampered with before and then you're going in and not just minimizing things, you're actually replacing things, which is more traumatic to the tissues. I never disclosed this on social media, but I've had rhinoplasty and I've had open rhinoplasty, which took me like nine months to a year probably to completely like heal because it was mm -hmm. still swollen for a while. And I don't know, I mean, I didn't have such a like a hump or whatever. I was just like, didn't like my tip. And so many doctors, like I'm in Atlanta, some of the doctors didn't even say they can do it because it was such a like um, kind of tedious work and they had to like really be like a, you know, artist to perform it. So some of them didn't do it, but one of the doctors actually did it. And I mean, I'm happy with the result, but um, still there are tiny bits that might be, I don't know, like, like you said, there is... 20 to 30% revision after rhinoplasty. It's possible, but still, I mean, I'm very happy with what I have now <laughs> than I used to have before, even though people say you didn't need it. But personally for me, it definitely felt better. Yeah, I mean, it makes a huge difference for, for people, little tiny things, because it's in the middle of the face and it can throw the attention from the nose back to the eye eyes or back to the mouth. So it really can balance somebody, even doing a small, tiny thing, just from changing the, the contours and the, the accents on the nose. And that's, that's what I love about rhinoplasty. The difficult part about rhinoplasty is the amount of work that goes into it, the better you get. So the better I get at facelifts and lip lifts, the faster they are, and it becomes easier and less brain work. The better I get at noses, the more time it takes me because I start to notice things I never even could see in the past. And so I'm sitting there nitpicking for a six-hour surgery when it used to take me three hours to do like a, a big major revision with rib cartilage and all this. And a primary that used to take me one hour now takes me three hours because I have to get it perfect and I have to lower my revision rate and I have to make sure this patient is has the, as little chance as possible uh, of coming back to fix it again, which is again, always a chance. So um, the better I've gotten, the longer it takes me now. Yeah, but when I did mine, I was so scared, <laughs> but it was like my first surgery ever. And 
a recovery time. And definitely I couldn't exercise for like nine months because it was still hurting. And it felt like, you know, your tip feels numb for like two, three months right after because all the nerves and all the everything it's like grows back together mm-hmm. yeah it takes a long time yeah what kind of unrealistic expectations some patient requests well a lot of patients uh, you know rhinoplasty is different than the rest of the face so talking about the whole face uh people want crazy things sometimes they want to look exactly like they did when they were 20 and they're 50 and so many variables just like i said collagen is not the only thing there's so many changes in the face that you can't go restore them you cannot make somebody exactly like they were. You can bring back some of the character. You can make them look a little younger. You can do that stuff. But from where they are, you're not looking to try to turn back the clock 30 years. It's not going to happen. So most people are realistic about that. The part that I see people are not realistic is sometimes they come in and they want a rhino. They want a rhinoplasty and they, they bring in photos of somebody who looks nothing like them. And it's, it's nice actually when they bring those photos because I can tell them, no, no, you're not Mr. Potato Head. I can't take this piece of a nose and plug it onto your face, it's not going to work. You already have the structure there. I have to play with what you have. I can't take somebody else's nose and put it on your face. And I have to explain to them that the part that I can change is the infrastructure, meaning I can go in and change the cartilage and the bone. I cannot change the muscle, the fat, and the skin. Those things are fixed. They're permanent. You can't change those. So if somebody has a heavy hooded cloaking skin with a ton of skin, you can't go reduce it. So you can't go take the cartilage down all the way or else it's going to collapse. So That's where I find people have the most difficulty having a realistic expectation about what their outcome is going to be is looking at somebody else's face and wanting that when the structure of the other person's face is very, very different. And I try to explain to them, and I've said this before in like an article, but you're, you're not a blank canvas. You're not this thing that I can come just paint. That's not how it works. The painting's been made. The house has been built. All I can do is go remodel it a little bit. I can't go tear it down. It's not possible. So patients have to really understand that, that we're not working with a blank canvas. We're working with structure that's already there and we can only improve upon that. And we don't ever want to worsen that. And the place I see people worsening it now is very often because of social media marketing and the ability to get followers and to get engagement. People, the doctors, they play into what's popular more so than they ever did in the past. So the doctors who are not very good or the nurses who are not very good, they'll do procedures that are not good for patients just based on popularity, thinking that that's what makes the procedure okay. Thinking that, that just because it's popular, it must be good. And this is a huge problem and it really brings out the bad providers. You see people who don't really know how to analyze or assess their own results. And the biggest thing we're seeing now is brow lift with a thread threads in the brows, threads in the lip to try to do a lip lift, plasma pen, these things that produce no results or harmful results and never can help people, but they're marketed and they market the shit out of these things. And so people get all excited thinking, oh my God, I'm going to get so snatched and I'm going to get these like brows and they look like freaks. And they, they, they think that an exaggerated look is acceptable when yes, okay, exaggerated looks can be, but they don't realize they're looking like freaks. And they look like freaks temporarily, thankfully, but then when it goes away, they're left with a scar internally and they were told that it's temporary. So um, these are the unrealistic things that I have no control over. And I just pray that somebody before doing it comes across me or another good doctor who can just kind of shake some sense into them and wake them up before they do something potentially damaging with an idiot doctor or an idiot nurse who doesn't know any better. 
and just plays into popularity. So that's that, that, that's really what I worry about more now because you post one thing on social media, it gets picked up, somebody else posts it who has followers and all of a sudden like 10,000 people, 100,000 people, a million people see it. And for the next five months, everybody's asking about this stupid procedure that shouldn't be performed in the first place. Yeah, threads are so popular right now. I heard about it even like some of my friends thought about doing it, like facelift with threads and all of that. Yeah, and there's okay threads. There's parts in the face that, you know, you can do a thread. And I personally have a million reasons not to do it on somebody. Um, But it's okay to do it for the face where you're going to get a little bit of, you know, pull or tightening. But people don't realize that they have a permanent scar that forms inside. And maybe it's a harmless scar. Maybe it's a beneficial scar, but it's not a controllable scar. And so I don't like to do it for that reason, but I'm okay with people doing it in the face just not in the brow and not in the lip because those are pure stupidity doing it there. It makes no sense at all. Nobody's ever going to get a good result from it. It doesn't exist. And people get all excited because they say, oh my God, this person did it, that person did it, and they look snatched. <laughs> they, look, they look crazy. And if you look, there's a, a post that T- uh, Chrissy Teigen actually put today on Twitter referring to one of my posts saying you know, she was looking into doing threads because she had heard about it so much and it's gaining popularity and she's getting you know, sucked into this rabbit hole. And she actually reposted my post saying, no, look what this actual legitimate board certified uh, doctor is saying in Beverly Hills. He's saying, don't do it. Thank God I saw that. You know, she's like, thankfully I saw this. Yeah, because I saw people look like crazy. Their eyes like pulled to the side. Like, it looked like kind of like cat eyes. In fact, yeah. try to. <laughs> yeah, they look like freaks. You know, that's, there's, there's no good way to say it. They look like freaks. Yeah, that's true. And have you ever had any funny stories that happened to you in the surgery? In surgery or in office? I've had Both. lots of funny stories. But um, Well, I've had plenty of funny stories with patients uh, hitting on me, but which is like the weirdest thing. I think it happens to a lot of plastic surgeons. And I wasn't aware of that because I never, uh, and I'm not somebody people hit on in general, but it kind of happens, I guess, in the plastic surgery world somehow. Um, and, you know, you just have to explain, you know, you're, you're their doctor, you're only there to take care of them. Uh, but in, in the operating room, um, I've, I've changed a lot. You know, we used to I used to be upset when I saw bad surgeries all the time. And, you know, my, my nurse would start cracking up when I just start yelling at, you know, so-and-so surgeon's name. I can't believe he did this. I can't believe he did this again. Um, but I've calmed down a lot and I'm very, you know, much more understanding of how things can happen in the face, even with good surgeons. So, um, you know, other than that, we don't have anything too crazy that happens in the operating room. Um, I've, I've been sabotaged by other doctors before where they help, you know, asked me to help them in a, with a patient who's having a problem and it's a doctor who shouldn't have been doing what they were doing and they needed to be bailed out when they had a complication. And they send me the patient knowing that if they tell me the whole story, maybe I wouldn't have taken the patient and said, send them to the hospital. So they don't tell me and they send me the patient and I'm dealing now with a patient who should have gone to the hospital instead of my office. So um, I've got those kind of stories, but not sure what like funny, enjoyable ones we've had. What is your favorite code that you live by? The code that I live by? In, yeah. in, in medicine or in, in, in the world? I mean, in the world. I guess in I, medicine, <laughs> one too. <laughs> yeah. I mean, in, in my life, it's just to be as happy as much as possible, as long as possible. So to kind of I avoid stress as much as possible and um, bad people. But uh, in medicine, funny enough, there's the first part of the Hippocratic Oath when you become a medical student is to first do no harm. So you're, the, the wisdom of medicine throughout the years, uh, this actually years ago, right? It, 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 it's Hippocrates. And uh, he said back then, first do no harm. 
And it was understood even back then that anytime you touch somebody, you touch somebody with a needle, you touch somebody with adhesive, tape, anything, you have risk of harming them. So if you're going to do something to somebody, first, make sure you're not making them worse. You're going in, you're going to do a plastic surgery procedure, make sure you're not going to make them worse. Or if you do accidentally, you can fix it. Okay. First, do no harm. My goal has gone from, you know, my primary goal before was do the craziest, best surgery you could ever do and show off and make, you know, show how good your results are and do filler all over the face and make them look bright and amazing and nice. Now, when I do injectables, my, the whole time, instead of thinking like do everything, the whole time I'm just thinking, don't mess them up. Don't mess them up. Don't mess this up. Don't mess this up. And I'm better than I used to be. But now I keep thinking, don't mess this up. Don't mess this up. With surgery, I've gone from number one priority being get the best result humanly possible and everybody to number one is make the patient happy, which is two different things. And they, they, they go hand in hand a lot of the time, but your priority is to make the patient happy. That means you have to choose the right surgery for the patient in the first place. So if a patient comes to me and they say, my eyes bother me, I can't go and tell them, hey, I, you should also do your lip and your face and your neck because they weren't asking for that. And let's say you go do that surgery, you can go do all that. And then you do the eyelid surgery and they go through all this healing phase they didn't expect. And now they're upset for three months. Even though you got the perfect result, they're upset for three months. So in my job, I failed. My job should have been to make them happy in the time they expected to be happy. And so a lot goes into selecting the right patient. A lot goes into selecting the right surgery for the patient and reading the patient and knowing what they want, even if they don't know what they want and they're having trouble communicating it. So number one goal when I'm treating a patient is how can I make them happy? Can I make them happy with a dot of Botox? If I can, I'm going to do that nice and easy. Or do I have to go and drag them into something much longer where I'm going to have to you know, cause damage to their body like a laser and then have them heal from it? So my, my, my perspectives changed a lot and I get amazing results now just like I did before, but now I have higher patient satisfaction because I backed off. And I say, you know what? Some people don't need some things or I don't need to do all that filler on this person's face. I could just do half of what I was thinking and they're going to be happy and they're going to heal faster. And in the long run, they're going to have less water retention in their face anyways. So um, it's helped me a lot seeing that. I wish we would have more doctors like you. Then we would have no botched cases. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it happens. Even with the best doctors in the world, you can have complications. But most patients with doctors like me who explain things to that extent, they get it. They get that I'm making them worse to make them better. I'm going in, I'm cutting them and damaging their body to make them better. And that when you do that, little tiny things here and there can go wrong, but I can fix it. As long as they know that they stick with me, they're happy. I fix it. The end result is always going to be awesome. Um, it's really when they didn't expect that complications happen or the doctor is just not a good doctor and they just botch everything. You know, botched is, is, is a word that's used too much. It's become very popular because people can get complications. It's not a botch. You know, a botch is a botch job. Like a doctor who shouldn't be doing liposuction is doing liposuction. <laughs> a doctor who shouldn't be doing facelifts is doing facelifts. And because they don't know how to prevent complications, they botch the patient. Whereas I know how to minimize my complications. I've been trained thoroughly. And when they happen, uh, they're, they're fixable. Especially when some people go to other countries to do some plastic surgeries and then they come back to US. I, I think that you should never like save up on your face. Like you should never kind of yeah. try to find something cheaper. If you do something right. based on your, or your body. Right. You know, I, I try to explain to patients too, it should never be a financial decision um, which surgeon you go to. You can find an incredible surgeon who is much more affordable. That exists. You know, there are guys who do the surgeries I do who are pretty good, maybe not as good as I am, but they're pretty good. 
and they charge a third as much or a fifth as much and they're good surgeons and you can go to them. But you should never say, okay, well, this surgeon charges 1000 for this. That's all I can afford. I should go do it. The surgeon has to be good or else you're going to pay way more trying to fix it. So I tell them either do it right or just don't do it. You know, you're not somebody who's hideous. You're not somebody who's ugly. It's not ruining your life. Don't go put yourself at risk doing it with a surgeon who is not good or inexperienced just because that's all you can afford. It's better just not to do it or else you're going to be making yourself worse and you're going to go through this period of your life that you hate yourself and you're going to get depressed and financially you're going to be more stressed because you have to save up to go to somebody who can fix it now and that is somebody who's going to be higher skilled and is going to charge more anyways. So you have to be very careful making financial decisions. But again, there are surgeons who are very cheap and affordable who are very good. Even in my practice when I began, I was doing facelifts. I was a tenth the price of these other surgeons. And I was five times as good, even when I was starting. So I existed at that time. Now, unfortunately, because you know my, my overhead expands, everything expands, my, my costs have gone up too. Yeah. Where can all listeners find you? Your social handles, your website, and all the information? Uh, yeah. So my, my website has the best photos to look at because uh, they're higher resolution. And that's beverlyhillscenter.com because nobody can spell my last name. So I got beverlyhillscenter.com. And then my Instagram is where I'm probably most active socially. And that's Dr. Ben Talley. So it's D-R-B-E-N. Um, and it just pops up. I don't really use Twitter much or that kind of stuff. So when Chrissy Teigen tagged me today, I didn't even see it. I saw it like when friends texted me. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Thank you so much for being my guest. It was my pleasure. Oh, thank you. Thank you. I was excited. Yeah, thank you. That was all for today, guys. And I hope you learned a lot of great info from this episode. And if you really enjoy it, please share it on your stories and tag NBB Podcast. I would greatly appreciate it. Also, you can always DM me on Instagram. It's not basicblonde underscore or NBB Podcast. And of course, your review on Apple Podcasts, it would always mean a world to me. Ready for a career in behavioral health? Earn your online degree at Herzing University. Choose from health and human services, psychology, or social work programs. Gain the skills to work, coordinate, and manage nonprofits. Secure a bachelor's in psychology to study mental health or advance your social work career through our online master's of social work. Let us help you become a social change agent. Your future starts now at Herzing University. Text HEALTH to 85109. That's HEALTH to 85109. Or visit herzing.edu. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.